You're listening to Booth One. You ought to be in pictures. You're wonderful to see. And I mean you, Frank Taranjo. Oh, really? Welcome to Booth One, listeners. Gary and Frank here with you for another episode in the art of lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. Today's show features an in-depth look at some of the most intriguing films uh, of the year opening later this fall, or maybe Mm. already opened. Uh, Frank was just recently an attendee at the Toronto International Film Festival. You haven't been there in a number of years, right? No, we've been going to Telluride for a couple of years. Uh, And you saw a slew of movies in less than a week. I saw 14 in five days. Frank, why don't you tell our listeners who our special guest is this week? Well, our special guest is my companion, or was my companion in <laughs> Toronto, and it's also my husband, Dan Pal, our movie guru. Ooh. Welcome, Dan. Well, Welcome back, I should you. say. Yes. You've been on our program once before. I have, Gary. It's great to be back. This is Filmmaker, awesome. screenwriter, educator, uh, bon vivant, <laughs> man about I, town, everything. industry insider. I wear many hats. Many hats. I can do many things. <laughs> and you're a director, of course. I have directed. Well, you're both directors. Yes. Right. I directed plays. He directs I'm films. More, I'm, I'm the film guy. Yeah. Well, I want to get right into this Toronto International yeah. Film Festival. Okay. I just call it the Toronto Film Festival, but it's TIFF. It is TIFF. It's TIFF. Yeah. For sure. T-I-F-F. And we're going to talk about a bunch of things today, but I want to start with that. Dan, what is so thrilling or maybe the most thrilling thing about going to one of these big international film festivals. Now, I, I can imagine that it's a little expensive. There's mm-hmm. a big... <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. There's, there's right. crowds. Uh, you you got to sit through movies in the dark for you know three or four times a day. Not that you have to, but you go there because you, you, you want to. Right. That's What's the, the most thrilling thing about going to these film festivals for well, you? Well, I think the most thrilling thing is getting to see certain films before anybody else does or at least in terms of like our local people let's yeah. say chicago chicago people and going along with that is that usually and i would say out of all the 14 films that we saw this year every director was there promoting the film so they were there to introduce it and then they did a q and a afterwards and multiple uh, big name actors were there. You want yeah. me to name drop a little bit, Gary? Well, it is booth one. Yes. Yeah. Really. We, we'd like so, a little uh-huh. name dropping. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I, we Who'd were... Who'd you see? Julianne Moore, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, Dev Patel. Carrie Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Paul Dano. Uh, we had Christina Hendricks and Sienna Miller and Aaron Paul. And we had Natalie Portman. And Oh, Natalie Portman was there. She yeah. was there. Army Hammer. Elizabeth Olsen, Julia Roberts was in a film that we right. saw, but she was not at the particular film screening called that we Ben were. is Back. Ben is Back, yes. right. That is, yes, that is true. Kyle MacLachlan, Maria Bello, uh, director Barry Jenkins. Now, did all going. of these actors actually mm-hmm. speak before oh, yeah. well, or after the film? Well, if someone asked a question, yeah, yeah. Q&A. Yeah. yeah, afterwards. And the directors talked about their films a little mm-hmm. bit, yeah. and then they yes. would take questions from the yeah. audience. Correct. It's, they usually do about a 15-minute Q&A after most of these screenings. And part of it is that what they're trying to do 
is they're really trying to get the word out about that film, either for the purposes of uh, maybe getting a distribution deal, but also to to sort of push that film along in the fall uh, award season. Venice comes first in August, then Telluride, then Toronto, and they're right on top of each other. And those are the three festivals that really tend to predict, if you will, to a certain extent, what films are ultimately going to, to play in the awards game, in the Oscar game, the next few months. Yeah, they launch those films. At one yeah. of those three festivals, they launch them, literally. I, I think every Best Picture winner, something like eight out of the last ten, or nine out of the last ten, all played at Telluride, which, as I said, comes right before Toronto. And, and it's like, if you want to get that kind of attention, which is important to get, because then you have the opportunity to make more money at the box office. Sure. If you've got awards associated with your film. Sure. Starts the buzz. Uh, you really have a chance to, uh, to get an, an audience that you, know, you might not get otherwise. And, and not the kind of, it's not the kind of audience you know, that wants to see superheroes. It's, it's us. <laughs> Right, right. right. Film fans. Right, yeah. Movie fans. Well, film fans is probably better. Or as I like to call them, moving pictures. (laughs) Flickers. How about flickers? Yeah, flickers. Flickers. So you mentioned that you saw 14 films. We did. You gave me a, a list of the ones you saw, and I've picked out a few that I'd like to know a little bit more sure. about. So okay. let's let's start with this one we already mentioned. Ben is back. Now, oh, this yeah. is a Julia Roberts film. She plays the mother of Lucas Hedges, right? Correct. That oh, is correct. God. She's come a long way from Notting Hill. Yep. <laughs> She's playing moms now. She's playing moms now. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about this, this movie and what your thoughts on it were. So... Lucas Hedges, uh, and by the way, I should add that the the film was directed by his father, Peter Hedges, Mm. who is previously known for uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape and Pieces of April and About a Boy. And of course, now Lucas has become this big, big movie star also. uh, And notice I said movie star. Yeah. No, he's a film star and nominated for an Oscar for Manchester by the Sea. Right. So with this film, he's playing an addict who comes home on Christmas. From rehab. From rehab. It's sort of by surprise, right? They're sort not of by surprise, yeah. yeah. And it's it's one of these films where everybody around him is like, oh, you know, what's he going to do? What's going to happen? They're walking on eggshells. Everybody's and- walking on eggshells, and they don't think that he's going to be able to, to, to make it even for a day. Ultimately, now, Frank will give you a different sense of this, because he uh, he had a different reaction to it that I I did, but I I thought it was a little overly dramatic and predictable, pretty heavy at times. It kind of just goes in these directions that, I mean, I don't want to give anything away, but it's more predictable than I think I would have liked to have seen on it. I mean, Lucas Hedges is great. Julia Roberts is good. She has a couple of moments that I thought were a little bit over the top. It's a good-hearted film. Mother's belief in her son and the persistence that she has in trying to solve everything associated with him. But it's kind of a lot to happen on one particular day. Frank, you had a different take on this? Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> I thought it was great. Great. It was. You I'm know, so we, happy to hear that because I love <laughs> Julia Roberts uh, in everything. I think she's wonderful and there are some over-the-top scenes but I think they're motivated so it didn't bother me as much as, well, as it did him. 
Um, but I mean, when I say over the top, I mean her performance was yeah, slightly no, over the top. Yeah, I mean, scenes, so I thought it was warranted. We can talk about her rankings, but it was my number two overall favorite. So I really liked it a lot. Out of all the and films loved, you saw. Yeah, I love yeah. that director. And so yeah. I was happy to see that I really liked this movie. And I thought Lucas Hedges was great. I thought the situation was heart-wrenching and it worked for me. As I said, Julia Roberts is one of my favorite. Yeah. I mean, she's yeah. a real movie star. <laughs> if you, she is. If you want to call a movie star. And I think she pairs well with Lucas Hedges because he's got a, quite a few things going, Dan, right? He's in that new Kenneth Lonergan play, The oh, Waverly right. Gallery. Actually, it's not a new play, but he's in the new production with our with our friend David Cromer. Uh-huh. Right. On Broadway. And I think On Michael, Broadway. Michael Sarah, I think, is in that. Yeah. And, yes. Uh, some other, a couple other Elaine May. Elaine Oh, Elaine May. May. <laughs> yes. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Someone you mentioned earlier, Dan, that you saw at this festival was Natalie Portman. Oh, yeah. And she mm-hmm. is in a movie called Vox Lux. Correct. Co-starring with Jude Law. That correct, is, correct. Yep. This movie got has currently, and I don't think it's released in the general public yet, but it's got a 93% Rotten mm-hmm. Tomatoes rating. This is about a strung-out rock star who started out as a child pop star with her sister when they were kids. Well, there's a step before that, if I could just mention. She is in a school shooting, and at the funeral, she sings this very plaintive song. She's this very sweet, lovely young girl. It becomes a huge hit, and that launches her career. It's a pretty disturbing opening to, uh, to the film because it, it's a little unexpected. We didn't know a whole lot about it when we uh, yeah, it's the shooting when scene. we went into it, but the shooting scene, it's a school shooting scene. And very disturbing, as they say, kind of comes out of, the, out of the blue. And Frank and I are on the same page with this particular film. We would not be um, the critics to put it in that 93%. Here's, here's the, the thing about it is, is you know, the first part, part of the film is... Very uh, disturbing, but there's an actress that plays the young version of what will then become Natalie Portman, the pop singer later, and she's very, very good, but as soon as Natalie Portman gets on screen, it's like she's playing a different character. She all of a sudden has this thick New York accent, and she's really, really animated, she does not at all capture the spirit of the young girl. It was so disappointing. And she's mean. She's and really she's horrible mean to watch. And really unpleasant. Yeah. Ugh. Her character then becomes sort of a, in terms of a pop performer, somewhere between like Janet Jackson and Lady Gaga. Right. And so Natalie Portman is doing, you know, all of these, all of these songs, and they're fine, but they go on and on. It's way, way too oh, long. She gives yeah. concerts. Who wants to see Natalie Portman yeah. Yeah. Do they Do they explain why she's become so no. bitter no. and, and no, just the, such a New Yorker? No. <laughs> I think it's just, look what the, sh- the shooting has done to someone. But mm. like, we didn't see any of that. All of a sudden, oh. next scene two is like Natalie Portman being all freaked out and mean and horrible. It was just, the it was number 14 on the list. It sounds like one of those performances that every once in a while kind of belongs in another film. It doesn't belong to the first half of the movie. It felt that way. And sadly, I I think Frank and I are are in the minority. Obviously we are, because we're not in that 93% that liked it. And the film got picked up for distribution while we were, or just maybe just after we had we had left Toronto, and they're going to do a push for Natalie Portman uh, for an Oscar. And as I'm watching it and disturbed by her performance, it suddenly occurred to me, you know, I'm not a huge Natalie Portman fan. 
fan. Yeah, as not it is, I, you know, I thought I thought she was she was good in uh, Black Swan, which she mm. won her Oscar for. But I thought she's been a little over the top in everything from uh, Garden State to Jackie, and I, I don't know where this one's going to go. I, I I think it's too uncomfortable an experience for people to really embrace it. But it is going to be playing at the Chicago International Film Festival. Which starts in just a couple of weeks, I think, on October 10th or on something the 10th. like that. Yeah, on the yeah. 10th. Yeah. yeah, And it's got you know, this ridiculous voiceover narration from Willem Dafoe that oh, is yeah. so yeah. unnecessary. I read about that. Yeah. It's out of place, and it's just not needed. I think, obviously, they're trying to get a lot of exposition through his narration, but it is he supposed you. to be a particular character? No, Does he appear no, in the film no. at no, all? He's just no, a narrator. But yeah. his voice is very distinctive. You can't mistake narrator. You yeah. can't mistake <laughs> the fact that it's Willem Dafoe. Right, right. And he doesn't explain anything. If he was like, "Well, here's what happened with this," but it's I not. It's like so. The next day, she went to the store, and then I she's see. in the store. Let's go to another popular film that played uh, at TIFF. This is Barry Jenkins' follow-up to his Oscar-winning Moonlight. This is a film called If Beale Street Could Talk. Mm -hmm. The runner-up in the People's Choice Award, I understand, in Toronto. A 92% rating on Rotten Tomatoes currently, Mm -hmm. uh, even though it's not in wide public release yet. You heard Barry Jenkins talk about this film, did you not? He was there. Yeah, yeah? he was there. Tell me about your, your reaction to this, this movie. Oh, I think we're both on the same page with this one, because we both really liked it a lot. I think Dan liked it a little more than I did. He liked it a little bit higher. But it's very powerful. It's got some great performances in it. Of people you don't know, new actors, or at least actors I didn't know. Sure. As a result, it makes it more real because instead of saying, oh, there's Julia Roberts being a mother, it's like, oh, here's a woman, and she, I think she really is that character. Unlike Moonlight, his, his last film, this one is, is actually much more dialogue-driven right. than Moonlight was. And I think that it's, it's actually more accessible, at least to those of us that like dialogue-driven stories. And it's not overplayed uh, by any of the actors. And you know, Frank mentioned some really good performances. Regina King is amazing, and she's a yeah, shoe in for an Oscar nomination for supporting actress. It's a really good portrait of the black experience uh, in America. It takes place in the nineteen seventies, uh, early nineteen seventies. Really captures the period very, very well. A really beautiful film. Choices of music, which she also did quite well with in with in uh, uh, Moonlight, are just uh, spectacular. I mean, I, I it was definitely one of the standouts uh, uh, for me. I think that there's a lot there that could take this this particular uh, story and uh, kind of propel it even into sort of a wider a wider medium because I think it would actually also work as a stage play. Really? Yeah, yeah. I really do. Yeah. Hmm. Which Moonlight originally was. Mm. Um, it was a play called In the Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue, was the original title of the play. So I think he does have a, a sort of you know stage quality to what he's doing. I have to mention this. Speaking of theater, Frank, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Broadway star who hasn't appeared on a program called Theater Talk. Oh, right. 
over the past 25 years, sharing both insider gossip and earnest musings on their craft. But despite its passionate fan base and access to Broadway's high-wattage talent recorded in New York for years, theater talk has come to a close. Its last show aired in July. Susan Haskins, the show's longtime host and executive producer and a co-creator, said the show ended after a change in leadership at CUNY New York, that's City University of New York TV, mm-hmm. which broadcast the program. It led to a dispute over editorial control. Oh How could a show as simple and as straightforward as Theater Talk <laughs> mm-hmm. run into some sort of controversy? I just don't know. According to her, this is Susan Haskins, the studio wanted to hire a television personality to host alongside her instead of the journalists who typically filled out her her panels. Uh-huh. Theater Talk began on public access television in 1993 under the leadership of Miss Haskins, the director and actor Stephen Ahern, and the journalist Michael Rydell. I just read Michael Rydell's uh, latest book about the inside secrets of the American musical. Wow. Fantastic to book. Check it out. The first episode was made on a shoestring budget. Sounds like a podcast. Uh, The uh, public access studio in New York where the first season was recorded was like, quote, shooting in a barn, Miss Haskins has said. That's not unlike what we do here. Uh, And I have to say that now that theater talk is gone, Booth One is, in my opinion, one of the very few arts conversation shows left in America, particularly in Chicago. I couldn't be more proud of that fact. Miss Haskins said, adding that the series later shared a studio with a softcore porn program. Which we need to get. (laughs) <laughs> that could be some additional revenue. I'd be happy to rent out this dining room for that. <laughs> Theater Talk won the 2017 Emmy Award for Best Interview Discussion Show in the New York area. Its last season was distributed to more than 100 public television stations nationwide. Oh, well, wow. that's tragic news on the theater front. I, I just watched an episode of that, which featured a writer who'd written a book about Tennessee Williams. After talking to Tennessee Williams for hours and hours and hours about a particular subject, and they had him on the show, and it was fascinating, and I hadn't watched the show in a long time. And then this news story mm. comes well, up. Well, it's also, there's a void now, so if anybody in New York is interested in, in picking up something similar, they should. Uh-huh. Dan, bear with us just another moment as we're talking about theater. We have to mention that we went to Frank and I, and our producer went to a production at Victory Gardens Theater last night of Paula Vogel's play Indecent. We did. Directed by Gary Griffin. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I was a little disappointed in the show. I didn't find that the director and actors were all working from the same page or maybe on the same script. I was a little confused by the weird presentational style of the director choice. Now, I did not see the show in New York, and I have it recorded from... You have it recorded yeah, from, from uh, American uh, Great great Performances Forms. on PBS, uh, yeah. which, I, which I need to watch. They, they filmed the New York production, which was nominated for a Tony Award. The director was nominated as well a couple of seasons ago. I was a little confused by, by the play. I actually think it's an intriguing, fascinating piece of theater. I just have some reservations about this particular production. Yeah, it did win Best Director and Best Lighting. 
Tony Awards. Yes. So um, the New York production was, you know, successful, at least as far as that goes. It was one of those plays, it was weird, because you're watching it and you thought, okay, they're probably doing everything they're supposed to be doing. The actors are very good. You know, certainly the lighting, the staging, the moments are good. Why is it not working? Why am I not riveted by this production? It's a compelling story. It's a story about a, about a 1920s play that was put on, which had, you know, two women kissing and how it played all over Europe and was not a problem. And then, of course, came to America and started out. in the Yiddish theater, the Yiddish theater in, right. in Poland. Yeah, yeah, in Poland, and, and it came to America, and of course, everybody got arrested, and there were all kinds of problems because it was quote indecent. I mean, it had all the elements of what should have been just riveting theater, but I was kind of squirming. It was a hundred minutes without an intermission, and after about. 60, I was like, oh, looking at my watch. Kinda. Yeah, it, it, it didn't draw me in. The, yeah, I don't know if it hasn't uh, gelled yet, or, you know, I couldn't really put my finger on, I, it wasn't the actors, they were doing what they were supposed to do, somewhat really it's, quite it's, good. They, they, they were quite good. Yeah. I, I, I felt that the actors were possibly working in slightly different styles at times. Perhaps. There were a couple who were quite extraordinary. Cindy mm-hmm. Gold comes to mind. Yeah. But uh, I think I think you put your finger on it. It seemed to be a directorial thing. You know, mm-hmm. the actors were all doing what they thought they should be doing, but for some reason the director didn't put it in our laps. And he should have, because it's the kind of show that would go there. Yeah. It's a terrific play, I think. It is. And it runs now through November 4th at Victory Gardens. Despite our reservations, I would recommend anyone seeing this. You're not going to see this play done in a lot of places. It's a rather courageous production here in Chicago. uh, And you may have a different reaction to it. I mean, it may work for you, or maybe after a couple of... This was opening night, so after a couple of performances, it could really gel. And the audience was understandably enthusiastic last Uh night, and uh I I think that most audiences, or the majority of audiences, will be enthusiastic about this play. It's funny, there are humorous parts. And and there's a lot of moving moments in the show. Mm -hmm, There are. Just maybe not strung together quite as well as I would have liked to have seen. properly. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Back to the Toronto International Film Festival. I want to hear about a film called The Hummingbird Project. This film features uh, Jesse Eisenberg, Alexander Skarsgård, and Selma Hayek. Right. They were all there. And They were. They were all there. They were. (laughs) I love her. I love all three. I have a funny feeling that this film was not picked up yet or may have been picked up for distribution because there's no trailer to be found online. Uh It hasn't been. There's nothing. Yeah, it hasn't been picked up for distribution yet. I really liked the film. And this is about two guys who get together and try to scheme some sort of invention or process by which they can sell stocks faster on the stock market. And, buy and, and sell. Buy and sell. And in fact, cornering the stock market mm-hmm. on yeah. the speed of which they can do that. And it's literally, what, a tenth of a second faster, and that's enough to make you billions of that's dollars. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're actually a hundredth of a brothers in Kansas City. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to build this high-speed underground cable, which is going to transfer that information. What, from Kansas City to New York? Well, yeah. Or New Jersey or wherever the computers are? Yeah, yeah, Kansas City to to New York. It's all about the building of this, but it's, you know, it's really, 
it's about a lot of different things, and that's why I really think it it sort of stands out. I mean, it's sort of about the value of money and the value of time and how these guys are so focused on this, particularly the, Je- the Jesse Eisenberg uh, character. You know, he's playing like a a, a a version of the character that he played in the social network, but to like a, a hundredth degree. I mean, he is really, really like powerful and assertive driven, and yeah. driven and pushy and he's very, very, very good. And but the film has all these other great things about it. I mean it sort of explores, you know, how we might spend our time on the planet and should we be spending our time so focused on money and being able to get the most money when there's only like we're talking seconds milliseconds of a difference Mm, mm. in terms of what they're ultimately trying to do and you know it has a big effect on both of their lives I thought it was great. How yeah. did this sit with you, I like, Frank? No, I liked it, too. I liked it, too. And what was fun about Alexander Skarsgård is he's kind of like this sort of hunky actor nowadays. He's playing a lot of those kind of yeah. parts. He's sort of on the spectrum, and he shaved his the top of his head. So <laughs> okay, he has this... I was this, wondering where that was going. Yeah. <laughs> he shaved the his, top of his head. The top of his head. So he's bald. I mean, balding with the hair on the side. And so he's kind of a dweeb and kind of a spectrum dweeb, but he's like a genius. So he's the one who's doing all the programming and he's obsessed with doing this and Jesse Eisenberg is like pushing him on. So as opposed to being kind of a leading man, he's... I, I think he's funny and he's charming. Yeah, I would agree. And he has, he has this great. dance that everybody talks oh, about. Oh, yeah. A certain thing happens that's very good for them. He's like dancing up and down. And he, he's, he's not a character that you would think would dance. And there's just no. a moment when he lets loose, and it is just a hilarious mm. scene. Yeah. Did you find this to be a favorite with the fans who were in the house that day? Oh, people liked it. Yeah, people that liked it. So, and they were yeah. all there. Selma Hayek plays their boss, and she's kind of mean and just tries to stop them because that'll undercut her. Sure. Yeah, the audience was quite engaged. I think one of the reasons why it maybe hasn't gotten picked up yet is because if you just think about the premise of it, it's not the kind of story that immediately says, ooh, this is for a wide audience, you know, because I don't think people quite get it. It's like, what? It's like a high-speed cable they're building. It's about money. But once it does get a release, I think a lot of people are going to be quite uh, rewarded uh, by the experience because it was a standout. Yeah, and the title comes from the fact that uh, I think a hummingbird flaps its wings a thousand times a second, and they were cutting off the time by one flap of a hummingbird's wing. So I guess it's a thousandth of a second or Mm. something like that, too. So in the amount of time it takes for a hummingbird to do one flap of its wings, which it does a thousand times a second, that's the amount of time they were cutting off. Sounds like something that I would enjoy. Yeah, I think, uh, would. I, 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 oh, I think, I think I'm going to watch for it. If, it. if it comes out, and I'm sure it will because it has big enough names, I would definitely think that everybody would enjoy it. It's a very enjoyable film, mm-hmm. as totally. well as like, hmm, didn't know that. That's so interesting. Yeah. As much as Julia Roberts is a movie star, I'm also of the opinion that Hugh Jackman is a movie star. Yes. And a stage star. Yes. The guy can do just about anything. Right. He's in a film called The Front Runner. This is the movie about the Gary Hart scandal. Right. Politician from the 80s. 80s? Yeah. 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 Early Early 80s? 80s. Yeah. And uh, directed by, and written, I think, by Jason Reitman. It is. Correct. This is the Donna Rice scandal. Correct. Your thoughts? Not a big fan. Really? (laughs) Yeah. How is Hugh? Hugh's good, actually, and I'm not a Hugh Jackman fan. Believable um, as but Gary Hart? Okay, as, as Gary Hart, yeah. The problem is that Gary Hart 
you know, he was almost a presidential candidate. Well, he was a presidential he was a candidate, runner. but he was the front runner at one he point. He was. And we never really get a sense for why. The charisma that that particular man uh, has, he's still, he's still around, it just doesn't come through in, in the film. And it's, it, you know, he, he's very sort of pensive. And the, the, the film doesn't do a, a great job with, the, with exposition, with giving us enough information about who this guy is and why he was such a, such a big success. There's many, many, many other characters that are involved. A lot of very familiar television uh, stars appear in, in the film. It just doesn't give us enough about him. And the film says a lot about journalism and and the question of should our journalists get as much information as possible about our candidates? Or is there a point where there's certain things that should not be revealed, that are not important? And I think that the film sort of, it, it doesn't hmm, really have... That seems very timely, I know. the way that you described it. It's totally, yeah, yeah, totally uh, timely. So it doesn't really have a position on that, but there's, there's definitely some sympathy for the journalist, while there's also some sympathy for Gary Hart. Well, and what's interesting is the fact that he's, his career or his political career was destroyed because it was a picture taken of him with Donna Rice sitting on his lap in a yacht. We don't know that they had an affair. We don't know, but that ended his career. Now, you look at what's happening today, and you've got sexual harassment, and you've got gang rape and all this kind of stuff against candidates. doesn't seem to probably you know, have much mm. of an effect. Mm. So whether it was a more innocent time or what, but that knocked him out of the picture, whereas nowadays doesn't seem to be a problem. You know what a first for this film is? What? It's the first movie to ever open on Election Day. Oh, really? It's opening on November ah. 6th, oh, which right. is strange. A, a Tuesday. Films don't usually open on Tuesdays Correct. anyway. Yeah. This film is opening oh, that, on good. Election Day. And it, actually, it's it's closing the Chicago International Film Festival. So if you want yeah, to see the it big before finish. Election uh, Day, yeah. uh, it's, the, it's the last film. What's the big opening film for the Chicago it's, uh, Festival? It's Beautiful Boy. The, Beautiful Boy. Yeah, Timothy Chalamet and Steve Carell based on that. Uh, very uh, popular mm-hmm. uh, uh, book about a guy dealing with his drug addict son. We did not see that in Toronto. It played there. It was very difficult to get tickets for it. So far, the reviews have been pretty mixed. Pretty mixed. Yeah. That's what I've read. The director, I believe, is going to be on the 10th at the uh, at the opening at the Chicago Film Festival. Which is similar. It's father and son as yeah. opposed to mother and son in Ben is Back. But then Lucas Hedges, who we've talked about, is also going to be at the Chicago Film Festival. Well, I don't in, know that he's going to be no, in it, but, but his film, film Boy, yeah, Boy Erased. Erased, which is a, a, a film about a boy who... It's like all the films are about a boy. I know, they're all about a boy. But in this case, his parents find out that he's gay, and they decide to take him through conversion therapy. We have not seen that no, one yet. Yeah, we will be seeing that uh, yeah, at, here in it. Chicago. It's got Nicole Kidman and yeah. Russell Crowe as his talk parents. Of them as Oscar uh, yeah, so contenders. We'll see. In our popular culture segment this week, Frank and yeah. Dan, are you like me? Do you like lobster? Love I do. Lobster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're you're serving it to us later, right? Correct. Lobsters no. in one main restaurant go out in a blaze of glory once they hit the pot. You know, they drop them in right. hot yeah, water. It's I all a big don't like controversy. Yeah. The owner of a lobster joint is sedating her crustaceans 
with marijuana smoke before cooking them, which oh. she says gives them a blissfully humane death. Interesting. Yeah, Charlotte Gill, owner of Charlotte's Legendary Lobster Pound in Southwest Harbor, this is in Maine, said that she had been looking for a way to reduce suffering of her signature menu item. She experimented with blowing smoke into a tank with one lobster. This is what got me with this story. The one lobster's name... Roscoe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When Gil returned him to the tank with the other lobsters without his claw bands, she says he was less aggressive. Gil, of course has a medical marijuana license, ah, so, okay, she, so she can, she can get it. it. Yeah, absolutely. She plans to offer it as an option for customers who want their lobsters to be baked before they're boiled. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> that go. doesn't mean, however, that customers will get stoned from the dinner. I'm sorry, Frank. Okay. This is not, well, not going to happen. Apparently, THC, which is the <laughs> active ingredient in marijuana, breaks down completely by around 390 degrees. Uh, therefore, they will use both steam as well as a heat process that exposes the meat to 420 degrees extended mm. temperature in order to ensure that there's no possibility of a carryover effect. Oh, very good. Unfortunate. <laughs> However, if you're at home, you could probably figure out a way to do both. Well, if she'd serve marijuana to the uh, patrons while they're eating the lobster, that could really be. <laughs> while we're on that note, I do have a gift for you, which oh. is sort of similarly related. Oh, sure. Talk- is it edible? Depends. It can um, be. It can be. <laughs> Um, we, uh, we're at the Toronto Film Festival, and then I was home for a couple of days, and then I went to Saugatuck, Michigan, to, uh, we rented a house with some grad school friends of mine. While we're shopping around, I saw this item, I'm like, I have to get this for Gary. So I'm presenting it to him right now, he's going to open it. And I think you'll see why. It's so I nicely wrapped. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I don't, I the hate to, I hate bag. to ruin Frank the paper. Sorry, yeah. sorry for the crinkling effect on the air. It's some sort of wearable material. Mm-hmm. Appears to be a T-shirt. Correct. Which says on the front, Great Lakes, since you were in Michigan. Yep. Unsalted, shark-free. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Living proof. They don't lie on T-shirts. Um, as you know, Gary is very afraid of sharks, and he won't even go in Lake Michigan. Right. I would not go in right. Lake Michigan. There are sharks I, there. I, I will go up to my waist in Lake Michigan <laughs> okay. and you know feel the waves. Well, if you wear this, you'll be you know much more comforted the fact that there are not any sharks yeah. there. Well, thank you, Frank. That's You're awfully welcome. nice, and it's welcome. a it's a beautiful color. It's yeah, sort of it is. aqua teal. Teal. Maybe we'll take a picture afterwards, and you can try it on and. People can see it. And we'll take a photo of me wearing that shirt. Good. Yeah. Let right. me let me finish my Roscoe the Lobster story. Okay. Did you know that in New Zealand, as well as in the Italian city of Reggio Emilia, it's illegal to cook lobsters by boiling them alive? Oh, really? Yeah. And earlier this year, Switzerland passed a law that live lobsters must be stunned before oh. they can be cooked live. If you're interested in knowing what happened to Roscoe, to thank him for his service to all lobster kind, Gil released him into the ocean. Oh, oh, that's nice. <laughs> so he had a lovely experience at the uh, Charlotte's Legendary Lobster Pound, and now he's out there with the other lobsters in the ocean and the sharks. Okay. <laughs> I've decided to save my most curious film, or the one that I'm most curious about for last. This is Alfonso Cuaron's autobiographical type film. 
in black and white. It's not yes. a documentary of any no. kind. It's an actual drama called Roma, mm-hmm. which is getting extreme press. Yes. He is not only the director, but also the producer, editor, photographer, and writer. Yeah, and <laughs> the subject all. of the movie. And well, the subject of the movie. L- loosely based on, yeah. on his life, and his win- young life. winner of Best Director for the film Gravity. He, right. That is correct. You, you guys saw this yeah, film. Gary I imagine that this was... It was brilliant. Really? Honestly, brilliant. I think that it's the best film that I've seen this year by far. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of filmmaking. The fact that he was able to do this without his usual uh, uh, cinematographer and create really just some... Um, oh, it's just... Beautiful, beautiful shots that are very a lot of long takes, but within each frame, there's so much detail and there's so much going on. It's a, it's an incredibly beautiful film to look at, and it's essentially about the woman who took care of uh, him and his siblings Nanny. and his parents when he was growing up in the 1970s in Mexico City. Yes, in Mexico Correct. City, the and housekeeper slash the house. So it's it's really from her point of view. So we only really know what she knows. And she's just, you know, very calm, very delightful young woman. But she also kind of goes through her own major issues and traumas along the way that it's just devastating at times to watch. It's also just a very revealing portrait of a family that is of a certain class system in in Mexico. (laughs) And we just sort of see how she views all of that. It's it's a really, really amazing experience. I think that this is it's going to win the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film for sure, but I, I, this may be the first year that the foreign language and Best Picture is won by the same film. The and first I'm, time. It will be. If it Could happens, it, it will be. It's got it's a great that, shot of being nominated. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's two and a half hours, but it's, uh, every moment of it is, is uh, just jaw-dropping. Frank, you feel yeah. the same way? Oh, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. The, the actress playing this young woman is, was not an actress. I mean, this was her first right. role that she was in. A couple of other people have been, they introduced them as, you know, she's known in I don't know, Mexican soap operas or whatever. But this woman, who is incredible, has not been in films before. And so. she speaks no English. And she so she not. was there at the screening, and she had an interpreter <laughs> Translator, yeah, and she's going around the festival circuit, but she's she doesn't speak any English. So. Where does the title come from, Roma? Uh, the title comes from the area of Mexico City that they lived in. That area, it's the Roma area of Mexico and City, and it's the area has, in some ways, a lot in common w- with Rome. So it, it's, I think, from Quaron's perspective, it's it's sort of the the Rome of Mexico City, ah, or the see. Roman yeah. section of Mexico City. I see. So, I'm going to assume that this is your number one film out of no. the 14. No, it was number three. You didn't mention my number, number three. one. Number yeah. three. I haven't oh, mentioned yeah. your number one. Or my, so, my so, number two. His so, number two. So oh, this which is the same film. Well, tell me two. what your number two was. My number two is Dan. the same as Frank's number one, and it is a film called Hotel Mumbai. This is with uh, Dev Patel and uh-huh. Army Hammer. We mentioned uh-huh. earlier. It's about that really, really awful situation in Mumbai where these terrorists had taken over a hotel in Mumbai. This about ten years ago, yeah. and were killing people left and right. And everybody in this hotel had to hide, and 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 they really had to defend themselves against something that would be very, very difficult to be able to defend yourself from, which is 
terrorists with guns. It's a rivet, riveting film from oh, start to finish. I mean, it, I mean, I think you know we sat there with our mouths open for the entire run of the film. I think it's an interesting film because it also sort of explores the whole idea of different cultures sort of coming together, trying to solve this issue. And it's really from these characters' points of view, so they don't know what's going on really outside the hotel. It's devastating to watch, but just an incredibly moving experience. Well, it was a very luxurious hotel, which is why these the terrorists, at least in the movie, there were only four of them, these four young men who are in constant contact with some man who's giving them you know, directions on what they should do. It personalized it. A hundred and some people died, but you follow a small group of people, and mm-hmm. so you are in there with them. Some survive, some don't. They're afraid to move because they're not sure what's going to happen next. And it is just heart stopping, and it's just terrific filmmaking. And it's it's like a like a like a real life towering inferno. I mean, it's not about a, fi- yeah, a fire yeah. in any way, but I mean, mm. just that whole sense of you know what that film mm. was all about, and trying trying to escape. And that was a disaster film. This is a disaster, but it's based in reality. And they're one of the the key characters in the film is is the head chef and. The actual uh, head chef was in the audience. Wow, yeah, he's one of the and heroes. It of was, the yeah, and it was just now that's cool about yeah, going was, to a yes, film festival. Absolutely, absolutely. You don't get that every day, and an amazing standing ovation. <laughs> yeah, you don't. Ever. You don't. Yeah. And, and he, you know, he was obviously very, very supportive of what they had done with with this story, and the audience was, you know, it was a very long ovation. All right, I'm I'm marking this down as, this was your number one film, yes, Frank? It was mine, yes, and the hotel's called the Taj Mahal. Oh, that's right. They kept calling it the Taj, so that was the Taj Mahal hotel or is still in yeah i we both thought it was just fantastic and i don't know that it's got distribution yet i mean it definitely has a lot a a lot of potential for sure i mean it it won't be out this fall yeah no i don't think so because i don't i don't think it it's been picked up anywhere to Mm. they talk about release early 2019 so Mm. i know that neither of you saw this film or these two films but were they playing in Toronto, uh, the other side of the wind? Yeah. And Our, yes, it did. They'll love me when I'm dead. The other side of the wind, which is the last uh, Orson Welles film. Correct. Oh, right. Yeah, it, we did not get to see it there, although it is playing at the Chicago International Film there Festival. So, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. in a couple of weeks. So, uh, but no, we did not not see it. I've heard some interesting things about it. Peter Bogdanovich yeah. is involved in putting this film together. Yeah. From right. Right. 45 minutes of sort of finished edited product plus all the extra footage that Orson Welles shot before he, well, wasn't able to finish the movie. I I don't understand the title. What's on the other side of the wind? (laughs) How many sides of the wind are there? Mm, Well, maybe that's (laughs) the point. The left side of the wind, the right (laughs) side of the wind, the other side of the wind. I I don't know. There are. It sounds like a fantasy novel of some sort. Uh, The other film I mentioned, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, is actually a documentary about Orson Welles making this film. Ah. They're both going to be released on November 2nd. Together, Together? Uh, as uh, I don't know if it's a package or not, but they're both going to be released probably in the same theater. You've mentioned a number of films that are going to be playing in Chicago, including this The Other Side of the Wind film. What else are you excited about in Chicago? 
that's coming. You mentioned Beautiful Boy, Beautiful uh, which Boy, is opening yes. the, the festival. Boy Erased. One film that we have also already uh, seen, it's Poland's uh, submission for the Oscars this year called Cold War. And uh, we actually saw it when, when we were in Krakow this summer. And it is by Polakowski, who won an Oscar for the film Ida a couple mm. of years years ago. It's kind of a Cold War love story. A black and white film, just like Roma, really, really powerful. So I highly uh, recommend yes. people see yes. that. Cold War, it's Cold called. War, Cold War, that's the, the English title. There's also Shoplifters, which is the film that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year. It's, it's uh, Japan's uh, Oscar submission. There's American Dharma, which is the new Errol Morris a documentary about Steve Bannon. I, yeah. I don't know about that one. But, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about yeah. that one, but uh, I, I do love Errol Oli- Morris. The Olivia Coleman. Oh, yeah. The Olivia, the Olivia Coleman film, which is it's the favorite. It's Yargos uh, Lanthimos, uh, the title director, is the who, who, by the way, directed the film The Lobster. <laughs> Back to that perfect whole thing, right a little segue. I could have mentioned everything's that connected. It is that one. That's an 18th, 18th century film about Queen Anne. Olivia Coleman plays Queen Anne, and it's sort of Queen Anne versus her friend versus a servant, and it also stars Emma Stone and uh, Rachel Weisz. And that's getting a lot of Oscar attention. Uh, Olivia Coleman is the new Queen Elizabeth in The Crown. The Crown, right. yes, the absolutely. New, right. Episode three or yeah. season three, yeah. yeah. There's also the the new film directed by Julian Schnabel uh, at Eternity's Gate, which with Willem Dafoe playing Vincent Van Gogh, and uh, Green Book, the film that won the Audience Award at Toronto, which we did not get to see because it had not it didn't play while we were there. It played after we had left with Viggo Mortensen and, and Mahershala Ali. Yeah. That's playing. There's a lot of really good Oscar submissions. You know, every year there's all these films that get submitted from different countries for the Oscar. And and it's hard to sometimes find them. This year you could see Border, which is the Sweden submission. There's Birds of Passage, which is the Columbia submission. There's also a, a bunch of interesting short films. They have a city and state short film program, which mm. is all films that mm. were made here in Chicago or Illinois. So How many uh, things are you guys going to get to We've see? We've got tickets for four. So four. Far. I'm teaching a film festivals course this fall at, at DePaul, and so it is the requirement of my students to uh, see at least one film. What do you teach in a film festival oh. course? Do you teach them how to put on a film festival? Not how at all. Know. How to curate? No, not Filmmaker at all. Students. It's actually, these are all students who are... In the they're in the upper uh, upper levels of their program I see. Uh, in the uh, digital cinema program that I teach in, and the idea is, you know, why are film festivals important to uh, filmmakers? So we talk a lot about distributors at festivals, how you you can get attention at festivals in terms of either awards or possibly a distribution deal if you've got a feature length film about how you can network at, at a festival and just about the, the differences in festival programming, why you might choose certain festivals to submit your film to versus others. We had um, Mimi Plachet, who's the art- artistic director of the festival, uh, came and spoke to the our Chicago class. The Chicago Film Festival. 
to Yes, and she came and spoke to our class um, this week and really, really generous with her time and spent about an hour and a half with, 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 with the students and really gave, I think, a lot of really great insights into how that particular festival is programmed, but also just what kinds of things students need to be aware of and really anybody that wants to make a film, what they need to be aware sure. of if they're trying to get a film out to a festival. Things to do and things to not do. Cool. Well, I appreciate you both telling me about your experience in Toronto. Uh, fascinating stuff about all of these films. Uh, Hotel Mumbai is now tops on my list. Yes, it should be. Dan, as a filmmaker and an educator, are, are there other projects you're working on? Is there something particular right now that you're involved with? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I am helping to produce a feature uh, film called Itchy Fingers, which is... Uh, written and directed by a couple of uh, really wonderful people that I've known for a long time, Anna and Marco Jake. The film is currently going through a crowdfunding campaign on Seed and Spark, and you can go to that particular site. And even if you don't want to donate you know, money to it, which, I mean, that's always welcome, even if, if you go on there just as a follower, because the, the plan with it is if, they, if, the, if the film gets a certain number of followers, they may be able to get this film involved as a Duplass Brothers uh, production down the road. The Duplass Brothers, they do a lot with um, young filmmakers. And, you know, there's the great possibility that if they like your film and you have enough followers that they could executive produce it, which is a great thing to have attached to to your film. So but I highly recommend if you want to take take a look at the at the uh, pitch that's on Seed and Spark. Seed and Spark. Seed and Spark. It's and like a Kickstarter. It's, yeah, funding. it's a Kickstarter. Yeah, crowd crowdfunding site. And, and the, the and the film is called. It's uh, the film is called Itchy, Itchy Fingers. Itchy and it, Fingers. It's essentially the, the the basic. It's basically about a young guy who wants to be a stand-up comedian. I think it will be an interesting film once it gets funded. Well, I hope our listeners uh, uh, check that out, for sure. And if you'd like to support Booth One, uh, on the other hand, in bringing you the best in lively conversation about the arts and fascinating guests, you can go to our website at www.booth-one.com. That's O-N-E. Yes, it is. Thank you, Frank. Uh-huh. .com. .com. And click on the Donate button. It's quick. It's easy. It's fully tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. And any contribution would be greatly appreciated. We're also still, still offering a copy of Rick Kogan's true crime book, Everybody Pays. Ooh. Signed by Rick, co-written with Maurice Posley, for a donation of $100 or more mm-hmm. to our website. So go look at that. Uh, click on the Donate button. And if it's $100 or more, we'll get you a book uh, signed by Rick Kogan, Lickety Split. I think we're getting those out pretty quickly. Good. Dan, as, as you know, and Frank is very well aware, that we finish our podcast each week with a segment called The Kiss of Death, which is a tribute to someone who's recently passed. I think this will interest you uh, a great deal. I'm not sure if you may, in fact, know oh. this person. Andre Blay. Aha! I, I thought perhaps you guys I had a would. glazed overlook on that. Whose yeah. innovative idea of marketing Hollywood movies on video cassettes sparked an entertainment industry bonanza 
and a revolution in television viewing. Mm. Once Hollywood studios, moviegoers, and couch potatoes began to catch on to this phenomenon in the late 1970s, Mr. Blay's merchandising breakthrough created a new revenue stream that helped revive the film industry. Mr. Blay, in effect, redefined the term home movies with a product that lasted just long enough to make him a multi Millionaire. Before he came along, and you'll know this, Dan, as a film historian, studios had been licensing many versions of their movies, about 20 minutes worth only, on 8mm film, because the technology for making longer recordings at that time just did not exist. In 1966, Mr. Blay helped found a company called Stereodyne, the nation's first successful audio cassette, and remember these, 8-track duplication. Mm, yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Did you have one in your car? I did not, but I remember them. I had an 8-track in my car. Yeah, where were you from? <laughs> yeah, I went right to cassettes. Uh, I didn't do 8-tracks. Three years later, he started a company called, and you'll probably recognize this, you may even have some video cassettes at home, Magnetic Video Corporation, mm. oh. which, like Stereodyne, produced tapes for corporate customers. In the late 70s, Mr. Blay began pitching to major studios the idea of putting the full-length movies on video cassettes. Yeah. Ideally, initially, I should say, there were no takers. Only about 1% of American households at that point owned a video cassette recorder at the time, so it didn't seem even plausible or reasonable. And the studios, more concerned with the potential for piracy than for profits, were reluctant to license their movies. As late as 1982, Jack Valente, remember Jack Valente, president of the Motion Picture Association of America, told Congress, this is what he said, quote, The VCR is to the American film producer and the American public as the Boston Strangler is to the woman home alone. Oh, my God. Jack Valenti. (laughs) However, in 1977, Mr. Blay was able to persuade Fox to make a deal under which the magnetic video would duplicate and distribute 50 50 of the studio's most successful films, including MASH and The French Connection. Mm. Those were two of the very first films that came out on video cassette that you could actually purchase and watch at home. For his part, he would pay $300,000 up front to Fox, plus $500,000 annually and a $7.50 royalty on each title that he sold. This was the point when they were were selling films. Even before rental stores. I think they were like $69.95 or something. I mean, they were not cheap. He went on to establish a new video duplication operation. He advertised in TV Guide and created the Direct Mail Video Club of America. That's oh, what you're referring to. Yeah. After joining for $10, subscribers could buy a movie for under $50 mm-hmm. or $69.95 right. or something like <laughs> yeah. that, I guess, depending on what the title was. It was about half of the going retail price in stores as the price of recorders plummeted to about $500 from $1,000 or mm-hmm. more. Sales boomed and so did rentals. By 1987, home video was generating more revenue than movie ticket sales. By 1987. Mm -hmm. This uh, new source of funding also eventually supported the rise of the American independent film market. Eventually, competition from other companies, piracy, the development of DVDs and satellite and internet transmission of movies to homes eroded Mr. Blay's market share and profits. The VHS was relegated to an almost obsolete cultural artifact. Do you still have a VCR player? I have a combination DVD VCR so that if we have any any video cassettes, I can transfer them over. Oh, you it, it can record onto yeah. a disc. Yeah. 
Mr. Blaine moved on to making his own movies instead of copying those of others as chief executive of Embassy Home Entertainment. He oversaw the production of the films including Sid and Nancy, The Princess Bride, and Hope and Glory. After leaving Embassy, he formed Palisades Entertainment Group, the producer of Prince of Darkness, The Blob in 1988, not the original Blob, but the 1988 one, and Village of the Damned from 1995. In 2010, he was the author of a book called Pre-Recorded History. Nice. Andre Blay was 81 and certainly changed our lives. Oh, yeah. completely. Yeah. Well, Dan, thank you for being our guest today. Your knowledge and insight into the world of filmmaking and film watching are very, very much appreciated. Thank Good luck in your endeavors. Thank you, Gary. It was a pleasure to be here. Always great to have you. Frank, always great to see you. Thanks. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, visit www.booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program for Booth One. This is Gary Zabinski. And Frank Taranjo. Saying so long and keep listening. 